Well, once again, I want to welcome you to Unlock Revelation. This is our 10th session. Tonight, we're going to talk about a word that isn't in the Bible. Okay? But yet, the subject is in the Bible. What do I mean by the word that isn't in the Bible? It's the word millennium. Millennium is not mentioned, per se, in the Bible. Neither is the word trinity. But the concept of the Trinity is in the Bible. The millennium, even though it doesn't use the word, is in the Bible. And as we go on, we'll talk about that a little more. The Bible actually refers to it in Revelation as Revelation's thousand years. Before we begin, I want to have a special prayer that the Lord will be with us in our study. Heavenly Father, as we... Open the word of God as we think upon these different thoughts that you have for us. Lord, give us the Holy Spirit to guide us, to give us wisdom, to give us light and understanding. And Lord, lead us into all truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of us are old enough to remember Y2K. Okay? Y2K, I remember I was in the Upper Peninsula in Wilson, Michigan, pastoring up there when we went over the line from 1999 to 2000. If you remember back then, it was uh, quite a dramatic time. People were expecting that the gasoline pumps wouldn't work and that the banks would shut down, the traffic lights would stop functioning, Airplanes wouldn't be able to fly, and if they did, they'd probably crash. And during that time, people were afraid that everything was going to shut down, not only the mainframe computers, but even your, your uh, desktop computers would be affected by it. It was believed that at 12 o'clock midnight, all the knowledge that was programmed into the computer would come to an end and it wasn't set up for the new millennium that was to follow. So at 12.01, which would be Saturday morning, everyone thought pretty much everything would come to an end. Even our, our missile systems and our national defense. Well, you know what, folks? 12.01 came... So did 1202, 3, 4, and 5. And we are still here. It's interesting to note at that time an article that appeared because not only were people who were projecting all these things, they weren't all just a fringe group that was making these predictions. These were actually being presented by mainstream media, even by religious books. You could go to some of the uh, book and Bible houses and you would find books about how everything was going to come to an end. This is an article that appeared. It says, we've got a problem. It may be the biggest problem that the modern world has ever faced. I think it is. At 12 midnight on January 1, 2000, a Saturday morning, most of the world's 
computers will either shut down or begin spewing out bad data. Most of the world's desktop computers will also be spewing out bad data. Tens of millions, possibly even hundreds of millions of pre-programmed computer chips will begin to shut down the systems they automatically control. This will create a nightmare for every area of life in every region of the industrialized world. 1201, January 1st, 2000. Your electricity goes off. Your phones aren't working. The computer at your uh, local bank crashes. Police and 911 are nowhere to be found. The illusion of social stability is about to be shattered, and nothing can stop it. Boy, it sounds very doomsday, doesn't it? But that's really what happened. You might possibly freeze to death. Well, don't forget, January gets a little chilly in Michigan, right? You might possibly freeze to death. A similar impact to the Great Depression. The end of privacy, a pretext to emergency laws and the coming world government. You see how this is tied in with even religious implications. And as I mentioned, bookstores, even religious bookstores, Barnes and Noble, Christian family bookstores and all, carried all kinds of books talking about what was going to happen. But you know, if we pay attention to the word of God, we find that the Bible does tell us that there is going to be an end time coming. But it also tells us what to expect and how to react to it. Many people at Y2K, they were storing up food for a year. One advertisement wanted us all to store up chili for a year. Some were telling us that we should store up beans for a year. And they were even selling composite toilets. You know, um, to compost toilets and so forth. I remember one individual I was giving Bible studies to in the Upper Peninsula. They had gone out and at great expense bought this great big furnace and how they were going to be able to feed it. And they had enough wood stacked up that would last them for how long? There were those who were actually going out buying guns and weapons and storing them. Some people were buying property out in the country and making little compounds to go defend themselves. Is that what's going to happen? Well, the Bible tells us that there is a millennium or a thousand-year period that's ahead. And we find it's spoken of, take your Bibles, please, and if you will look at Revelation chapter 20, it begins and tells us about that thousand-year period. And as we look at it, we see that people, generally speaking, have an idea that during the millennium, everything is going to be peaceful. There's going to be peace on earth. The world will be converted to Christ. And that people will live on the earth in peace and tranquility. 
Is this what the Bible says? There's a lot of people who have different concepts. There are the premillennialists, the amillennialists, the postmillennialists, and there are some that are somewhere in between. Everyone has a different concept of what the millennium is going to be like. But what does the scripture say? Let's let the Bible speak for itself. And we find that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. I had one individual tell me, well, we're already in the millennium. If we are in the millennium, and if Satan is bound for a thousand years, who's causing all this trouble around here? Right? It could it possibly be that we're not in the thousand years yet, and Satan isn't yet bound. He's still causing a lot of trouble. What's it going to be like on earth during that time period? Is this a place where you would want to to live and be? It's interesting to note that in Genesis 1.20, it tells us that when the Lord started creating the world, that it was null and void. What does it mean? Because when we're starting to talk about the millennium, it actually uses, the, the word millennium actually means, uh, comes from Latin terms. Mille means a thousand. Annum means years. So the thousand years is what's used in here, and we just use the Latin term for it. But we find that it actually talks, when it's speaking of the bottomless pit, it doesn't mean a big hole. Actually, what the word uh, bottomless pit means, it comes from the Greek word abusos. Abusos actually means null and void. Abusos means that the earth is going to revert back to what it looked like when the Lord started creating everything. It's, it's a time of darkness and As the scripture tells us, Satan and his angels will be bound here. Now, with a chain. Now, can this be a literal chain? I doubt it. I I can't imagine an angel being bound with a chain. What is the chain that holds him? Jesus wants people to come unto him because he loves them. But the devil hates us. What is his chief responsibility? is to keep us from coming to Christ, right? And to deceive people so that they won't come to Christ. And during that time period, the devil is busy, not only, I mean now, he's deceiving people, he's tricking people, he's lying to people to get them lost. But you see, when during the thousand years, It begins when Jesus comes again. That hasn't happened yet, you see. So the thousand years is before us. It's not in the past. It's not current. 
It's before us. It begins with the second coming of Jesus. And how is he bound? The devil's business is to deceive people and destroy people. But you see, when Jesus comes, we learned earlier, and we'll talk about the two resurrections tonight, we find that the first resurrection, when Jesus comes, he resurrects the dead in Christ. We who are alive are changed in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ who are raised first, they go up to meet him in the clouds. Christ never touches the earth. Remember that. Anybody who walks around on the earth saying he's the second coming of Christ automatically isn't. That's why it says don't even go out and, and listen to them. If he's in the desert or if they say he's in a closet or secret room, don't even bother going. If he's on CNN, don't even turn it on. Okay? Jesus doesn't touch the earth. The dead in Christ rise up to meet him in the clouds. And then it says we who are alive in a twinkling of an eye or snap of a finger, you might say, are our bodies, which can die and decay, all of a sudden, in that length of time, become so that they do not decay or die. And we rise up to meet him. And we go with him. Why? Remember, there's a, an investigative judgment that's taking place. First off, we go up to meet the Father, for one thing. Secondly, we go up to see why Aunt Matilda didn't make it? And remember, the hellfire is reserved for the devil and his angels. And we have also an opportunity to look at the books during that time. Now, if the righteous are gone with Jesus, when Jesus came, what happened to the wicked who were on the earth? They died at the brightness of his coming, right? So what does that do to the devil? He's out of business. Did you ever try to tempt a rock? You see? You can't lead a rock or a tree into doing something that's evil. Even the trees will probably be dead too. But it also says that the earth is moving lightly back and forth. In plain words, it's rumbling and uh, causing earthquakes and so forth. And so this is what the Bible predicts. Because at the coming of Jesus... The dead in Christ rise up to meet him. Remember, when Christ comes back, he speaks with the voice of the archangel. Why? He's the commander-in-chief over the angels. And he says, go get them, boys. And the angels come down and gather up the righteous from their graves. And up they go to meet Jesus in the air. Look what it says in John Chapter 5, verse 28. The Apostle John <clears throat> is recording this. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, sometimes called the uh, resurrection of damnation. Now, in that particular text, it doesn't talk about the millennium. It says there's a two resurrections. One is to life, one is to condemnation. 
we might get the impression that this is, they're going to happen simultaneously. You see. Just like they, in the time of Jesus, they had the impression that when the temple was destroyed, that's when Christ was coming back again. And Jesus had to expand further on it and help them to understand. You see, there are two resurrections. One for the righteous, one for those who are not. They are separated, Revelation tells us, by a thousand years. These are the ones who are resurrected to go to heaven and there they spend in the presence of the Father and the Son. They are a part of the investigative process. Over here, we find that the dead are sleeping in their graves until they are resurrected. Let's look a little further. You don't have to take my word for it. Let's look at what the scriptures say. And look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Is this a secret coming? There's no secret rapture. Matter of fact, this is called the noisiest text in the Bible because it wakes the dead. You see, he descends from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Trumpets are blowing, there's a shout, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's the word rapture, to be caught up. When does the rapture take place? When Jesus comes back again. And it's not secretly snatching people off the earth. It's very public in the process. And shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, let's look at John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus made this promise. Before he went back to heaven, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. The word mansions is an old word that means large rooms. There's many large rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I wouldn't lie to you. I'm going to tell you the truth. You see, the Father's house better known as the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It apparently is large enough that it could accommodate anyone who chose to go there. It could accommodate every person on earth if they had chosen Christ. But we find that there are those who do not choose Christ. As a matter of fact, we have reason to believe from the text that the majority of the people will not be resurrected to go with Christ. Look what it says here, 14.1, John. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where is he? He's back there. He's back in heaven where he went when he left the earth. Why? To prepare 
for the judgment. And we will have a part with that. When Christ comes in the clouds of heaven, it will be very bright. The wicked who cannot look upon that brightness will flee to get out of his presence. It says, my God is a consuming fire to the wicked. Therefore, they'll find every cave or crack or subway tunnel or whatever they can to get out of it. They'll even ask the mountains to fall upon them. But yet, those who are prepared, those who have developed characters in harmony with that of Jesus, those who are, are living the way God wants them to, those who are keeping his commandments, those who are looking for his coming, they will be able to look right at the coming of Christ and they will not be consumed or burned away. When we go back to that heavenly city, how long it's going to take? I don't know. I, have a, I, I can't prove this, okay? But I suspect the Lord's going to take us on a sightseeing trip on the way. I'm going to ask him if, hey, do you mind if we swing by a few of these planets? Uh, let's, let's swing by some of these constellations and some of these nebula and see them. Right now, we only see them through a telescope if we're lucky. I'd like to get a first-hand view of them, wouldn't you? And I'm not so surprised if the Lord says, okay, let's take a little tour on the way home. But anyway, when we get back there, what's he going to do? He's going to take us to that holy city, that new Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting. The streets, it tells us, are paved with gold. Wouldn't that be cool? A lot of people wear gold. But up there, gold is pavement. Why are you wearing pavement? You know? But we can walk on streets of gold. It says that we meet under the tree of life. We eat of the fruit of the tree. We walk beside the river of life. In heaven, there's no distress, no more despair, no more sadness or tragedy. My friends, this is a place to look forward to. And as I tell the kids, heaven is for kids. You see. And I think they're going to enjoy it. And the Lord himself will place upon us the crown of victory. And you know, for each soul we've led to Christ, I think he'll kind of decorate that crown a little bit with precious jewels. Because you are the jewels of Christ. Those who believe in him and trust him are his jewels. And when Christ comes back, he's gathering his jewels for the kingdom. You know, in the time of Noah, the people had to make a decision. They were either going to believe God or they weren't. We don't stop to think that they had longer warning about the destruction than we give them credit. We usually say, well, Noah preached 120 years well, you know, I got news for you. Enoch, remember him? He was the seventh from Adam. He lived on the earth and walked the earth 365 years. And then the Bible says he didn't die. He didn't die. It says he was translated to heaven without ever seeing death. But you know, 
before he left, he had a little boy. That little boy's name was Methuselah. Methuselah. Methuselah lived almost a thousand years. What was it? 900? 969. That's right. Okay. He lived 969 years. Almost a thousand years. You know what the name Methuselah means? After me comes the deluge. After me comes the flood. You see. And that's long before Noah came on the scene. Already they knew that the earth would be destroyed by a flood. And when Grandpa Noah came on the scene, he preached for 120 years. And the people chose not to believe him. Now, even Noah, with the help of his three sons, that was a lot of work to build that boat. They had to cut the wood. They had to shape it. And not only that, too, I really believe that that boat was big enough for those who chose to be saved, to get on it. But as a result, there were many people who helped to build the boat that never got on it. My friends, how many people have helped to build the Christian church? And then at the last minute, they themselves have turned aside from it, you see, and never made it in. There will be those in the last days who say, Lord, Lord, I did this and that. He says, I never knew you. You weren't really doing it for me. You were doing it for yourself. How many of us, because of what our friends think or what our children think or our husband or wife think, we back away from standing for truth? And there were many who helped to build that ark who never entered it. Even when they saw the animals coming to get into the boat. They saw it. They, they very likely understood it. But even after the angel closed the door, did the flood come right away? No, there was a little time of testing. A time of probation. I'm sure inside they're wondering, boy, everybody's outside making fun of us. And we're in here with all these smelly animals. Uh, I wonder, I wonder if maybe we got the message wrong. Do you think maybe even they were going through a time of testing? Their faith was being tested. And those on the outside who may have said, oh yeah, we need to get on the boat, we need to get on the boat, and didn't. After a while, they look around and don't see any clouds, hasn't rained yet. I didn't really believe it in the first place. Foxhole Christian, who once they got out of the foxhole and they saw, oh, we're safe, oh, and they start laughing at it. But you know what? It started to rain, and the earth began to break up, and lo and behold, destruction was before them. The Bible says that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be as we approach the coming of Christ. There will be those who will be skeptics, those who will say, ha oh, I never really believed that stuff anyway. Well, there will be those who unfortunately will wait to the last minute 
and find out that they are not saved. Notice what it says in Revelation 6, 14, and 17. The sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. It doesn't matter your status. I'm sure there'll be some preachers in that group too. Those who will say, I can't stand to look on his face because the sin is not purged from their lives. They're not ready for the coming of the Lord. And so they try to get out of his presence. You know, uh, did you ever take a board that's been laying around in the yard for a while? You turn it over, and you see the little pill bugs? And you see a bunch of other little critters under there. What's the first thing they do? They, <laughs> they scurry for the darkness because the light can kill them. In nowadays... You know, you have washers and dryers, but I still remember the days when my mother would take the sheets outside and hang them on the the line, not only to let the air get at them, but to let the sun bake on them because the, the sun disinfects them, you see. And basically, this is what's happening. All the sow bugs are running to hide from the light of the coming of the Lord. But there are those, like a moth, who will go right toward the light. Notice what it says here in Revelation 6, 14 through 7 again. And from the wrath of the lamb. Now a lamb is a cute little animal. I don't think I've ever seen an angry lamb, have you? I mean, I haven't been around that many. Bob, you were a farmer, but you didn't have lambs though, did you? But... I don't think I've ever seen an angry lamb. They may be, but I don't know. But here, it's the wrath of the Son of God. Why? Because he's the one that they put to death. He's the one that is now making good what he told them he was going to do. And for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Who's able to stand in that day? That's actually a rhetorical question. Because the answer is given us, those who have faith and have trusted in him. Why? They're the ones that are able to look at him and not be destroyed by it. There's only two classes of people as we approach that time. There's those who will be able to look up into his face and those who will flee. There are those who will be ready for the coming of the Lord and those who will not. There's no second chance in here. You are either saved or lost. There's no purgatory where you go because you're not quite ready to go, but you're not bad enough to be eternally destroyed. So you go there and you, you suffer for a little bit and then you can go to heaven. 
It doesn't work that way. There's either saved or lost. When Jesus comes, it tells us that it will be like Hiroshima after they drop the bomb. Like New York after the Twin Towers came down. I've been on top of the Twin Towers. And my sister and her husband, they went down to help after the Twin Towers came down. They went down to help with the emergency situation. And it, it was a rubble. It was a mess. Why? Because of the brightness of his coming. Don't forget it said every island would be moved out of its place. What's that say about earthquakes? You know, it's not going to be a good place to be during the millennium. And it says here in Jeremiah 25:33, And at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. The fertilizer. When Christ comes, the wicked are destroyed and they just stay there until the end of the millennium. And there's nobody to bury them. Now, that's not going to be a very pleasant place to live during that time period. But there are certain individuals who are alive during this time. Satan and his angels. They are chained to the earth by a chain of circumstance. The circumstance being, they're out of business. They're in solitary confinement. They're in isolation, you see. Oftentimes, I've done quite a bit of work in the prisons. And a lot of times, people who are sent to prison, when they're about to be released, there's those who will say, Oh, if you'd only release them, I'm sure he's changed. I'm sure if we give him a second chance, and some do, you know, when they get out, they do uh, live productive lives. But Jeffrey Dahmer, I'm not so sure I want him released, you see. Because if he cannibalized so many people, I don't want to be invited to his house for dinner. Guess what? I'm having the preacher for dinner. It's a, you, there are some of these folks, they say, well, maybe he's changed. Let's let him loose. And their character has changed because they've had a thousand years to think about it. Well, has the devil changed during that time? He's in solitary confinement. My friends, we're going to see that the scripture says he would be released for a little season. A little season. Why? To see if he has changed. Don't forget, the saints now, in Revelation 20, verse 4, it says, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. The saints have a part in the judgment. It tells us that we will judge angels. Did you know that? In 1 Corinthians 6, 2, and 3. 
Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's the wicked people. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Now, it can't be the good angels we're judging because they haven't done anything wrong. What angels do you think it's talking about? I think it's talking about Satan and his angels because he's the one that caused these people to do wicked things. He's got a price that he has to pay. You know, God knows the outcome of the judgment already. But God in his fairness wants to make sure that every one of his creatures throughout the universe knows that the evidence justifies the end that they are to come to. Why? Because God does not want sin to arise a second time. So when Jesus returns, he takes his people to heaven with him. The wicked remain on earth and the earth is desolate during that time. As a matter of fact, there might be birds around for a little while because it talks about the feast of the birds. You know, it talks about eagles. The word for eagles, as it's referring to that time period, really the word is the same as for vultures. And you know where vultures eat? The ones who didn't make it, okay? Look at Revelation 20, verse 7. It says, now when the thousand years had expired, Okay, the thousand years is now up. Satan will be released from his prison. What's going to release him? What's his business? Tempting people, right? Deceiving people. All right, who's he going to tempt and deceive? The dead, wicked, are resurrected. But you know, there's two things that happen at this time. Jesus and the saints come down in the holy city. And the wicked are released. Notice Revelation 20 verse 5. But the rest of the dead, those that didn't go with Jesus, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Okay, so this is oftentimes referred to as the resurrection of to damnation. They are being resurrected. The judgment has, the, the court of appeals or the, were reviewing the cases. They came to the conclusion that justice has been done. Remember the scripture says that the hellfire is reserved for the devil and his angels. You're not supposed to be there. God doesn't want you there. He's doing everything possible for you to be saved. But you still have the power of choice. That's why it's called trespassing. I know my daughter lives up in Nova Scotia. And right in the town nearby, they have quite a, an industry where they do open pit coal mining. And there's a fence around there. Well, you can stand on this side of the fence and look over the cliff into the hole. And you'll be safe. But you jump over that fence and you may be down the bottom of the hole looking up. 
You go to Niagara Falls, you can go right to the edge of the water, and we've been there, right up to the edge, and there's a fence there. You cross that fence, and you may go over the falls. That's called trespassing. And those who have trespassed and really want to be in that hellfire, the Lord's going to allow them to do that. He's going to let them have what they want. You know, the worst thing God can do is give you what you really want. Stop and think about it. The worst thing that God can do is give you the things you really want. Remember what I said before. Everything my natural heart wants to do is illegal, immoral, or fattening, right? And if God gives us what our wicked heart, which is wicked beyond our belief, it's going to get us in trouble. That's why he wants to give us a new heart. He says, my son, give me thine heart. I will create in you a new heart. That's why... He has given us the opportunity to choose. So the first resurrection comes at the second coming of Jesus. The second resurrection, we find something else happens. The holy city now descends to the earth. And the wicked are released. The first thing they see is Satan. And he says, look. See the holy city? It's settled over there. Hey, guys, there's more of us than there are of them. And when Jesus came back, you had a hard time looking at him. But I chased him away. I've got him confined there in the fort. But you know what? There's more of us than them. Let's surround them. And we can surround them and we can take that city. Not only that, but inside that city is the tree of life. And if we can bust through the doors and eat of the tree of life, we can live forever as immortal sinners. You see, the psychology that he uses on them. And so it says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven say, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This has always been God's desire to be with his people. And in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There, there shall be no more death, sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. When all wickedness is past, the last thing to die is death. And Satan, being the worst of them all, when he's gone, sin is gone. My friends, God tells us when the execution of the judgment comes. You know, with every judgment, you know, you have to first be charged. And it goes before a grand jury to charge you. Then the next phase is you have to go to court. And then there's a trial. And if you're found innocent, you let go. But if you're found guilty, then you're bound over. You can make appeals all you want until you've exhausted it. And then the final thing is the execution. 
This is the executive judgment we're talking about now. We're talking about the execution of the wicked. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive. That's part of his job, remember? Deceiving the nations. That means people from all countries, all over, all generations, which are in the four corners of the earth. Now, it says Gog and Magog. What is Gog and Magog? This is an allusion back to the Old Testament. And basically, this is, say, the, the wicked. Those who have apostate religion, those who are atheists, it doesn't matter. Those who are on Satan's side, it says to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. There's a lot of them. Look at verse 9 in chapter 20. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. They surrounded to take the city. Now I want you to notice, where are they? They are on the what? The breath of the earth. In plain words, they're all over the place, on the surface of the earth when that fire comes down from heaven. So where will the wicked be burned? Down, down there? In the middle of the earth? Or all over the earth? You see. You know what this also means? It means that if Jesus came today, hell would not burn for at least another thousand years. Hell is not burning now. And it's not down there. The hellfire at the end of the world will burn on the surface of the earth. And the only thing that protects the wicked is they're in that holy city. Just like with Noah, when the... What did I say? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to burn up the wrong people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The wicked will be burned and the righteous will be in the city, okay? And, you know, in the days of Noah, you were either in the boat or you were drowned, right? You see the similarity. And it says that they try to take that city, but they can't. Now, it's at this time that Jesus is elevated to a high pinnacle. And over the top of the walls... Everybody can see him, both those inside and those outside. And the wicked at that time, can you just imagine it? All of a sudden, like a, like a rerun on a television program, they can see the plan of salvation rerun, and they can see the part they played in either accepting or rejecting Christ. And even Satan and his angels are forced to kneel and admit that they have lost. That's why it says every knee will bow before Christ. And at that time, don't forget those walls are transparent on the city. This is the first time in all human history that everybody who has ever lived is all alive at once. 
You are either on the inside or the outside looking through. You can stand there and you're eyeball to eyeball with Julius Caesar, with uh, um, Napoleon, with Hitler. And standing beside you may be Abraham and, and Isaac and uh, um, the saints of old. You see, everyone who has ever lived is alive at the same time. And then it says, what happens? After they have acknowledged. Do you ever stop to think that Satan would rather die than to live forever and never be able to get into trouble? There are some criminals who would rather have expressed that they would rather die than to live when they can't get into trouble. I've run into a few people who, um, I, it's, it's not for me to judge, but I think that, quite frankly, I don't know what they could do. Well, I, they couldn't live unless they got themselves in trouble. That's the way it is with Lucifer. And so he would rather die you see, the devil isn't in charge of hell. The devil is the chief log in the fire. He's the one that caused it all. And he will burn until the wickedness is burned out of him. And then he becomes as dust, not dust, but as ashes on the ground. You burn a log and what does it become? It becomes ashes. And it crumbles into dust, you see. And notice it says, the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, I don't know what this heavenly fire is like, but I have a sneaky suspicion, and I can't prove this from Scripture, so don't even bother asking me to give you a text. You know, the Scripture does say, my God is a consuming fire to the wicked. I think the Father has been withholding his presence from men for a reason. Even when Jesus was on the cross, there was a cloud between him and his father because Jesus became sin for the world. I wonder, I just wonder, if the father pulls back the veil and just lets his glory shine with full amperage and the wicked can't take it and they are consumed. They are burned by his brightness. Now, I can't prove that, so don't write it down on a question sheet, okay? (laughs) But you see, I don't know how he's going to do it, but the scripture says that it will be God who in his mercy allows them to have what they want. When we discuss the uh, hell, as it's mentioned in the Bible, that's a separate lesson. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be speaking on what that word really involves. And uh, we'll talk about that later. But for the saints, after the, the uh, fire comes down from heaven, the whole earth is a molten mass except where the city is. And when it cools down, he recreates a new earth. Notice what it says in Matthew 25, 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you who cursed, into the 
everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angel. Now, everlasting doesn't mean that it's burning forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It means the effects of that burning are forever. The effects of that burning are everlasting. They last forever. That's what it's referring to. In plain words, the devil's gone and won't come back. Praise the Lord for that. Look at Revelation 21, 3 and 4, and it says, For behold, I create a new heaven and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. As you get older, and you get together with some of your friends and everything, isn't it natural for you to start reminiscing? And guess what? I don't know about you, but when I, we get together for family reunion or anything like that, we always talk about the good old days. You know, a lot of bad things happened in those good old days. But we don't bother talking about them. We just talk about the fun we had and the good times we have. We have a tendency to forget the bad. That's what it's saying here. They will not be remembered anymore because God has something better for us. In the Old Testament, there were the cities of refuge where you would go if you were accused of a crime. And as long as you were in that city of refuge, you were protected. Jesus is that city of refuge. And in the scriptures, the New Jerusalem, the holy city, is the ultimate city of refuge. It's the city where Christ is and where his saints are. And when the flames go out and it cools down, we'll get to see how he created the world because he's going to do it all over again. Won't that be cool? I look forward to that. And how many of you want to be in the city and not outside the city when the fires come? God bless you. We're going to have a word of prayer. I do want to mention to you that on Tuesday, we're going to tell the rest of the story. We're going to talk about the lake of fire, okay, and what the scripture says on that. So we invite you to come on back. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your gracious blessings. Thank you for the loving Savior, the one who makes it possible for us to live eternally. May we live in your presence through all eternity. That will make it heaven itself. Now bless each of us as we dismiss. May it be with your spirit, with your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen.